0: City's
1: been so quiet since the boys in green went back But it only took them three months to put Portland on the map Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its years When the players come on the field, a thousand singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game We're the Portland Timbers and winning is our aim So let's give up
0: Welcome to this episode of the Green is the Color podcast. In previous episodes of this podcast, I started with a very brief intro, said hello to my guest, then went into a more formal introduction. I'm going to do this one a little differently, and do at the end listen, because there's a little what you'd call an Easter egg at the end of this episode as well, so do listen through. But I'm mostly going to do it differently because I'm eager for you to hear from today's guest. Part of me also wants to prove him wrong from when he told me, quote, after hearing the lifelong stories of John Bain and Mick Hoban, my story will be short. I often see my name among the legends of Portland Timbers and shake my head and ask myself, how did this happen? End quote. Well, it happened because we're talking with one person who, no matter what your era or eras of Portland soccer, you know. He represents what we talk about when we talk about loving Portland soccer. That's appropriately a word you'll hear a lot of today, love. I'm eager to get to this discussion, so I'm going to say welcome to the former director of Love and Celebration for the Portland Timbers, the third member of the Timbers Ring of Honor we've been lucky to have on this episode, Timber Jim Serrell. Jim, how are you?
1: Life is good. Thanks for asking me to uh, speak.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, There's just so much to cover and and so many good things that I'm eager to to share with people that might be listening and may not know. Um, We'll start at, I guess, the start. You told me uh, when you were growing up, there was no soccer. You were active playing football, wrestling, running track, playing baseball. Where did you grow up and what's it like to think about, given your journey and how much you've contributed and meant to soccer and soccer meant to you, to think about it not being a sport offered at a high school?
1: Well, uh, first question: Where did I grow up? I I was <clears throat> I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. My my dad moved all over the place, chasing power lines. Uh, my dad was Bob Cyril, and my mom was May. Great parents. Uh, and then uh, then we moved to Alexandria, Louisiana, until I was nine, and then we moved to Baton Rouge. Louisiana until I was 14 and then we moved to Oregon and my folks settled in Lake Oswego on the south side of the lake and it was a great place to grow up all together different than Louisiana better school systems and uh, I I, I played all like you said all those sports but uh, in high school the only people that were playing uh, soccer at the time was the ski team and the coach of the ski team thought that would be great exercise for them during the weekend. and so I'd look over there and and watch them play while we were playing football on an adjacent field. So that's that's my early uh, childhood memories. Is is uh, oh, I, I think I would have been a really good soccer player, but uh, I had uh, I was strong legs and. Uh, But I was short in stature. I was 5'10", compared to every other kid. And uh, I I regret playing tackle football. I I hurt my neck really bad. In fact, today I'm going to go and have a procedure done on my neck, an ablation, try to see if we can get rid of some of this pain. So soccer is a great game. I I encourage everybody to play it.
0: Right. And so... Thinking of the, about that, uh, going to how you came to the Timbers, uh, I like to think about the connections and moments and where just so many things had to happen or just happened to happen to give us any given moment. For example, your first Timbers match involved Pele, which alone is amazing given that Pele, uh, how, how he came to the NSL, how short a window he was here. Uh, but on top of that, the moment uh, meant more to you and your family after the fact. And Civic Stadium and the Timbers games became an outward connection to an internal connection. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that game and uh sort of the circumstances that brought you to that game and, and where it went from there?
1: Yeah. Uh I worked for my dad. I was working for my dad at the time over in Idaho for Washington Water Power. And he called me up, I think it was on a Thursday night, and said, I want you to come home, uh, we're gonna go see a soccer game and I go, Hey, whoa, dad I said, We're a football family. Really? And uh, he said, no, I want you to come home. We're going to, your brother and sister are coming up from Eugene and we're going to go see this guy named Pele. And I said, okay. It was a long drive. I was, you know, uh, over, I think in Lewiston, Idaho at the time. So I drove over uh, on a Friday and we saw the game on, I think, Saturday. And then I drove back Sunday evening, go back to work. But it was electric and i was really glad i went the place was packed and uh to see a legend of his stature was impressive not a bad first game right so uh and we were seated uh right behind the south end goal i think maybe up four four uh, uh levels And uh, my sister was sitting between my brother and I, and my dad was on my right. And Jimmy Kelly, uh, who lives across the street from uh, a garden that I ran for nine years, walked up and gave my sister a red rose. He had a whole arm full of roses. And they gave them out to the young ladies in the crowd, and some of them to the senior ladies. And I just thought that was really cool. My brother and I were just really impressed. So that was, uh, and then the game was just fantastic. It was a lot of excitement. And uh, I I don't think a lot of people were educated about the game at that time. They just loved the energy. So uh, that's how it all started. And then of course my dad passed away. He drowned in the Columbia river in December of that year. Yeah, and that was a really meaningful time for us. For us, and my brother and I, vowed to keep going uh, as long as there's the Tambers team, and we have.
0: That's. Uh, I mean, I feel like we could talk the whole hour on that one question. Um, on one hand, it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, when you talked about the roses, I talked to Chris Dangerfield, and he said when they started doing that, they didn't take the thorns out of the roses. And so the players would get out to the field after doing that, and their hands and their arms would be all cut up from people trying to grab the roses from them. Uh, <laughs> Which is kind of interesting to that know perspective. That. But, yeah. And then on the other hand, uh, yeah, I'd be curious to know if in, in future iterations of that, they, somebody had to dethorn them. Um, but then also you talk yeah. about how that one moment sort of, you know, became this thing. Was your dad always going to Timbers games, or was this a, a unique for him as well?
1: No. Unique. Uh, he'd do stuff like that. I remember we went up to Madison High School, there was a track meet there, and the, uh, John Carlos and uh, some other uh, great, well, they, they set a world record on uh, uh, quarter-mile relay. And we got to see him uh, run at Madison. So, it was, it was spur of the moment, my dad would find tickets to this or that, and we'd go. I used to go with my dad to a lot of what the the, the Buckaroos before they became oh, the, the Yeah, yeah. He's a big time hockey fan. Uh, he never played hockey, but uh, he loved to go, and so I, you know, I I'd, I'd go with my dad. It was fantastic.
0: So this sort of goes into it when I was interviewing people for the Clive Charles essays, something that sort of came up a lot is that there's never going to be a similar situation to what Clive built a UP, partially because the landscape's different, partially because you know, Clive was very special. But again, it's a lot of different things coalescing into a moment. And I'm guessing in all of sports, there will never be a conversation again where somebody calls the general manager of a soccer team and says, can I bring a chainsaw to a game? I know you've talked a bit about this in other places, and I, I will on the webpage link to some of the other interviews that, that go into your story as well, but could you tell us about that a little bit?
1: Uh, yeah, well, after my dad passed in the next spring, uh, my brother George and I, we we go to games together. we uh, go to Leaky Roof Tavern, have a pint, and uh, then we walk from there to the game it was it was uh, free parking we parked underneath a great big billboard and there was room to get in underneath the sign and so <clears throat> we were fit and we'd just hustle on over there and go to the game i thought it would be a lot of fun i uh, i worked on a tree crew um, trimming trees around power lines so i was really adept with the chainsaw pretty much and so uh, I called up the general manager, and at the time it was Keith Williams. And uh, I went down and met with Keith, and I showed him some photos of some, some, you know, helicopter repelling work that I did and fires and whatnot. I was really buff back in those days. And uh, he, he says, well, we, you can't bring a chainsaw in the stands. There's no way. Uh, but he says, we are looking for a guy to uh, saw slabs off of a log uh, player scores. And so that's how it happened. And, uh, of course, it, it was a beam at first, a, a Timfab beam. And Keith Williams is a really interesting guy. He used to build log flumes and wa- uh, wooden water pipes, and he shipped them all over the world for, uh, to transport water. Uh, and very unique, niche type of industry, and uh, I just love sitting down talking to Keith. He's just a wonderful human being. So that's how it happened. I had to get Keith's authority, and and, uh, actually uh, he's the one that came up with the moniker Timber Jim, and I was just blown away. They introduced me as Timber Jim. That was a shocker. And uh, so my job was, was just to stay in the dugout and whenever they scored a goal, go out and cut a slab and then hold it up and then go right back in the the dugout and sit until the next one. At that time, uh, the dugout was straight-out level. So I could see the game, but I mean, I saw a bunch of legs, really. And uh, I, I didn't really have the vision of being up and seeing the whole field. So it, it was a lot of fun, but uh, I, I wasn't near as involved as I became later.
0: So you, you said up above, and, and there's sort of a there's a theme I want to throw out there that, that's going to come out throughout this. A couple of things are, one is just like showing up and participating and being present and just looking for, opportunities to participate in life. And when you tell stories about your dad and taking your kids to do something, that's one of them. Uh, a second one I see is, and I got this from a lot of the NASL players I've talked to, um, which I'd consider you one of because you were there from pretty much the start, right? Is this idea of the culture of, of what it means to, to think of others and, and, you know, just show up and be in service to something larger than ourselves with the, with the organization started from day one. And even when you're talking about Keith and, um you know the fact that his job in a sense was bringing water to people right outside of this it's just this really um you know cool sense of of who we are um that is making other people better that seems to be a very uh portland timber thing
1: i agree yeah i, I and it's so a you know, uh, very unique city
0: yeah and so and we'll get to some of that uh as well from, from what you did in other parts of your career um but you said a, a spar pole, which I want to make sure it's correct. We are talking about a spar pole, um,
1: and like many yeah. others,
0: seeing you up there was one of my first memories of of you, and therefore, the tangible thing that that became the timbers. Uh, so you said in the in the video, to in an OPV video, um, it's a nod to your dad, the, the the spar pole. Can you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, uh, my dad did tree work trimming trees on power lines for 42 years and he was with a company called ospland tree company and they had contracts all across the united states and my dad eventually got into management but he started out at uh, he was 16 when he started trimming trees and um he did it the old way they didn't have lift trucks they had to climb everything and Mostly, they used hand saws, and if they were going to take off big stuff, they had a 36-inch buck saw hanging, and it was just like a a cross-cut saw, but it only had a handle on one end. So my dad, his shoulders were huge. His, His muscle in his back was like three inches thick. He was, and his hands. He, when he was young, he he grew up on a dairy farm, and his hands were really, really strong, really thick. He used to make money betting guys that he could tear a phone book in half. And uh, at that time, he was in Pennsylvania, so he'd take a Philadelphia phone book, and he had a way of licking the inside of his of his hand between his thumb and his forefinger and get that wet on both hands and then he'd uh he'd grab a hold of the pages he'd make sure the pages were a little bit spread out you think you just want to have a super grip on it no that that friction caught and he just one motion he'd rip it in half and uh he had a technique and he, d- he did that but i wanted to make a knot. i love my dad my dad uh he he spent time with us, all of us, and uh, he was gone during the week a lot, but uh, when I finally did tree work, I understood who my dad really was, and later on, my dad was a Marine, he was on the Marshall Island campaign, and, you know, Saipan, Tenyan, Roy Namor, Kwajalein, and we talked, and then finally Iwo Jima, and my dad was shot up. Uh, Most of his platoon was killed uh, when a great big artillery shell landed in the middle of his platoon. And my dad was on the outskirts, actually was across the airfield getting ammo. In the middle of the night, he came back and there was a great, great crater there. So my dad never talked about it, but uh, I wanted to honor my father and... uh, so I figured climbing a smart pole would be a good way to do it. And also, uh, Oregon's history. The spark pole is what they set to get a high vantage point, to lift logs up off the ground and, and, and drag them up to the landing. So I thought a spark pole was an appropriate thing to do. It'd be eye candy. Uh, there was a movie called Sometimes a Great Notion. And there's a scene in that uh that's a Ken Casey book by the way and from Oregon and uh seeing was a guy tap dancing on top of the smart pole I just thought that was really cool and i you know that's what I did for a living I I had no problem with heights and I rigged it so I was safe and I wanted to make sure that everybody knows that I didn't have a death wish at all times I was tied in but that's what I meant, a nod to my dad, is I just felt like I wanted to represent our industry and uh, Oregon loggers. Timber built Oregon, no doubt about it.
0: 100% this this region as well. Um,
1: mm-hmm. And I'm
0: glad you mentioned the Kesey novel uh, as well as reference to the, the Paul Newman movie. Yeah. It's just a fantastic... Unbelievable. Right? It, it really... Rep- it, captures a lot of the layers of, of this region
1: um, that I think even and sometimes I now. go up the Siletz and I pass by where uh, the Stamfords lived in the movie and mm-hmm. uh, the building is still there the house is still there it's unbelievable and that's a beautiful stretch of river and then you come out in the Siletz Bay a friend of mine has a place there on the Siletz, uh Bay and uh, so I get to go down there quite a bit it's just part of Oregon that I just love. I mean, there's so many. I go to Nesquin quite a bit and uh, Newport. And I, I just, I love, I'm, we were an outdoor family, so I got to spend a lot of time outdoors hunting and fishing. And a lot of that was with my dad and my brother George. So.
0: And so I've got to think the logistics of getting the spar pole into uh then civic stadium next to yeah. um, you know you're next to the mac club you're, it's not exactly something you could just throw in the middle of the field because the field's there so it's in a corner it's off uh, the street how um, like how did that how did you approach the timbers with that idea and, and logistically how do you even do that
1: well uh billy the uh wasn't Civic Stadium when they made, brought the great big spar pole in. It was PG Park, but it all started in Civic Stadium with light poles, and there was two of them at the southwest corner, and uh, they weren't as big around as the spar pole that I climbed later on, but uh, they were probably I don't know 18 inches, uh, uh, and and I at those in those days I free climbed them. I just I didn't have a flip line. Um, but anyway I'd pre climb them and, and uh, they were uh, those poles were harder than the hubs of hell they were hard and I had to really jam my hooks in so I'd climb up there and uh, they had great big honking cross arms from pole to pole they probably spread apart probably 30 feet maybe not that far i would say 20 feet and so those tied uh, the cross arms tied those poles together, and then up above is a great big light bank so i I climbed up there and and uh, started doing my thing. It was kind of a spur of the moment thing it was it was uh, spontaneous uh, uh Keith William asked me to to uh, try to see if I could get the crowd going. I said, geez, Keith, this is a junior high." I said, I thought you just wanted me to cut slabs. and So I tried it, and I got the red card. People did not like it. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, give me a T, give me an I. I got the red card. And so I sat down, and Keith comes over and says, thanks for trying. And he goes, it, it, it just didn't work, so we'll figure something. I said, Keith, I'll take care of it. I'll figure it out. Uh, I'll get him to participate. So that's when I started climbing in poles. Okay, uh, and the difference is night and day. Uh, if I was going to get out and try to get the, interact with the crowd and get them going, I wanted to have a hook. You know, I wanted them to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, do something different. And it's a little bit dangerous. And well, at that time, it was really dangerous because I was climbing free, free handed. Not not even using a flip line. A lot of times. That's- you climb a hard pole, you kick out. Your hook was kick out. And so you have to grab a hold of the pole real quick. And uh, I got a lot of slivers in my arms doing that. Never fell. Never even came close to falling. But uh, And then you asked me about the, the bringing in the great big log. Uh, Portland General Electric took that off on one of their right of It was in the way of building a power line. And um, so they had a big old... Crew out there getting it down and on a truck. It's 110 footer, and uh, uh, Ken Puckett and his crew—they uh, were—they had gone through the the renovation of the stadium, getting ready for opening day. And here, uh, Jim Taylor says, "Hey guys, we need to get a pole." So he put the wheels in the motion to get a pole set in there, and uh, it's where the 76. Sign is the big ball 76 ball? That's pretty much where it was placed, and uh, it was a lot of work. And, it, and I didn't realize at the time how much of a big uh, problem it caused because they had to get a line crew to come in and set it and a crane, and uh, uh, they had to rent an auger a four foot auger to open the hole, and then they had to put a a corrugated piece of pipe, galvanized pipe uh, that's 12 foot, and they sunk it down in there for a casing, and then they had to uh, backfill it and tamp it. So I'm telling you, when I climb that pole, I get up on top, and it's just like standing on concrete. It's solid as a rock and no wobble at all. And so I felt really comfortable up there. And it's 24 inches at the top. And uh, honestly, it was a great platform. And then I put a piece of steel on the back to put a flagpole in that Hannah and I made a flag, uh, a two-sided flag like the state of Oregon is. And on one side, we had the old Timbers logo. And then uh, we had the new logo. Still have that? i don't i took it down uh did i i can't remember if i sent you a picture of that but uh it was in my uh memories a couple of days ago and it's uh, mm-hmm. it was tattered it was had it basically uh come apart but I put Hannah's soccer ball on top of that. I filled it with foam and jammed it on top of a fiberglass pole, and it stood up there for eight years. And uh, uh, it was very, very meaningful to me, particularly after she passed away. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a spiritual place to be for me. I climb up there. Uh, I, hear, I can still hear that flag flapping in the breeze. It was really cool. And the view from up there was amazing. I looked out over the whole city pretty much. Yeah,
0: this is – I'm noticing another pattern in these interviews I'm doing when I'm learning new stuff and starting to really understand connections. Um, Because here's mm -hmm. a place that you came with – you know, this is what your dad did. He just exposed you guys to stuff that he could expose you to, and it was – you know, a wonderful moment, and you walk in and see Pele. On one one hand, a little later, you become, and you're going to hate me saying this, but iconic for the for other people's experiences. And that's my next question. I'm going to go into. But within all of this, uh, your story is, is still your story, and there are these unique, special moments where you're still having something for yourself while you're serving other people, while you're giving other people this experience. And I think about playing as well and. You know, I'm not trying to equate the two because it's not quite the same, but I there was something about being in front of, um, well, an indoor it wasn't so big, maybe at the most 13,000 people, where I just felt really like so much peace because I was by myself doing my own thing in my own head, uh, in a way I couldn't be otherwise, and it, it seems like, you know, here people don't probably know that you were having up there what that moment. Uh, around those things people may or may not know the backstory. even if they're up there uh, what they mean to you is you're doing what you do for everybody else
1: yeah i i loved it you know it's uh one thing i didn't say is uh i was amazed at the difference of the way people respond to me after i climbed the light pole that was a game changer Climbing that pole, and then I rappel down about 30 feet. I'm still up there, what, you know, another 70 feet. And I took a chainsaw with me. And so I'm out away from the pole, probably three feet, and started swinging. I inverted, put my feet around the rope. My saddle's holding me tight. When you invert, it actually clamps on your hips and... Uh, So I started swinging back and forth, back and forth. And all of a sudden, the lights are going in, they're going out. They're going in, they're going out. And then I fired up the chainsaw. Bam. They scored. I rappelled down, go over there, cut the slab, right? And uh, from that day forward, uh, I never had any problem getting the crowd to participate, you know, they loved it, so that that's another uh, really cool moment for me. And getting up in front of the crowd, I never really was an extrovert, um, but getting a chance uh, going and being successful at organizing that and doing that, uh, that was fun, you know. And it uh, it was loud. The Timbers Army is really loud, and if you're standing in front of them, it's like jet engine loud. Yeah, you can't hear yourself think, really. <clears throat> did I answer the question?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if not, the question was was not good enough because your answer was better. Uh, but yeah, I think <laughs> you did. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I've mentioned this to you, and I got to say, we talked about the Timbers Army, and um, when I was interviewing Scott Thompson uh, for a Cascadia piece, well, I'll just go through this question I have. But he had two memories. One was. His last game, and that was also against the Puerto Rico Islanders, uh, not the same last game you had, but a different one. And he actually had his own Tifo, the man with the golden heart, which was fantastic. And he said that's a big memory of his because, you know, it's something he can, it's on video too. He can show his kids, and it just, I get that. But here's his other memory of, of Portland. And I'm just going to go through this. He said, quote, When the LA Galaxy told me that I was getting loaned up here, talking about Portland, he remembered it was his first time to Portland. I just grabbed my stuff and jumped in the car, end quote. Fifteen hours of driving later, Thompson's welcome to Oregon was seeing a man up on a spar wielding a chainsaw at a soccer game in the middle of the city. And these are Scott, Scott again, quote. I made it right to PGE Park at kickoff and seeing Timber Jim climb that pole banging his drum. Thompson arrived knowing nothing of the team, but, quote, that was a pretty cool moment. This is a pretty cool setup, he recalled thinking. There's something special here. And that's, that's mm-hmm. his other memory. Of course, 1T is a legend, having made 156 mm-hmm. appearances for the club and so much more to the community and after. So I, I wanted to share that story here because uh, with you, um, which, you know, I've shared this already as we were sort of preparing for this, but I also want other people to know that. And, and I hope that you know the impact you have on, on what we have and who we are. And here's a kid. I try to put myself in Scott's shoes, who was just loaned from an MLS side to an A-League side, which in a lot of ways, career-wise, is not a step up, even in the early days of MLS. And then he comes here after, you know, driving straight through and sees you just doing what you love, and that sticks with him, and that gives him professional hope. And, of course, we know
1: what he turned that into for for the community here as well. Oh, yeah. That guy is – I love Scott. And he's got a, a beautiful family, holy moly, you know. And <clears throat> he's dedicated his life to the sport. I was just having fun. You know, I last time I saw Scott was at a uh, TEDx event, and we were both in the audience. But I'm telling you, that guy is fit as a fiddle. He could suit up today, no problem, and play. He's just a, a physical specimen, really. Yeah, But he's just as nice as can be. He's a very engaging person. And uh, I'm sure he's going to be successful at whatever he does.
0: And when we talked about this uh, earlier, you also mentioned Tony Betts is another player that's that close to you, just like Scott.
1: Yeah. Well, we don't get to hang out because he's living in, I think, Palm Springs. But he calls me occasionally before he comes into town and, he needs tickets or whatever i i hook him up and uh he's got a a really unique story too and i hope that he's interviewed at some point uh about building soccer not only in the united states but around the world uh he's uh, has a similar background to mick in that regard but uh By the way, I have to comment on on Mick's interview. Oh, my gosh. I never knew all that. And Mick and Linda uh, participated in my garden. Uh, Also, Nolene Conway. Um, And and I never knew the extent of Mick's influence in the world of soccer, around the world. And I think you captured that in the interview. Uh, John Bain was a workman's tale soccer I think in my mind and uh, what it took for him to make a living and man what an amazing family uh, yeah. John and, and Shannon and their children uh, what a family I mean and, and they take they've taken in so many kids you can't even count them uh, they, and they exposed a lot of kids to more than soccer just fun they know how to get together and have a good time, and uh, I'm so glad you interviewed them both.
0: Thank you for that, um, and I completely agree on all those. And Tony, Tony has said he would uh, he would do one of these, so um, I'm awesome. excited for that because
1: he did He's he did a, a lot
0: for. He is.
1: <laughs> is. yes, that,
0: awesome.
1: that'll be fun. Holy mackerel. He's funny. Yeah,
0: yeah, I love that. And of that, course, dude. scored the uh, iconic. Uh, playoff goal in 1975 against the
1: Sounders from uh, Willie Anderson Cross. Yeah. Unbelievable atmosphere uh, that day. Yeah. Rucked the field. Whole whole fans, uh, the whole entire stadium poured out on the field. And they had a party out on the field. (laughs) It was great.
0: The connections that 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 group specifically made with the fans uh, when there was nothing here before the months, you know, months before to get to that point. It's just, it's really an amazing story.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Started a whole so, big love affair right. and, uh, uh, a cultural phenomenon. All the kids you see on Saturdays, everywhere. Families are going out and, uh, it's, it's an, it really is. It's amazing what they were able to start and it just snowballed and now it's, it's uh, huge and, and the other thing I need to say is that I, I'm so glad to see uh, what's happened uh, with the women's soccer. I mean we're, the t- we're at the top of the table uh, the thorns are uh, it's, uh, I coached uh, Hannah when she was playing bunch ball soccer, and the the goal there was just try to get it to spread out. And they all wanted to gravitate towards the ball. It was really fun. You know, the kids were having fun, and uh, it, uh, it was more than just playing on the field. It was going out to pizza afterwards. You know, practices. You, you know, little girls are out there picking daisies when you're trying to get them to. To, but they were active. They were out there amongst their friends and I, I think that's happening uh well not just in Portland. <laughs> All over the place. It's a great game. Holy mackerel! You know, I'm sad that I never got to play it. I think I w I I think I could have had a lot less injury.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want I, I do want to talk a little more about uh Building the game and the game here, but before I do, there's a story you you sort of hinted to that wasn't in my questions, but when you, we communicated before, that I, I think is kind of cool, um, and it's you know when my before my son was born, uh, 2012, in the summer, and my wife was then uh, you know in her second trimester, and we went to a Timbers game. It was hot, but we saw uh, them play the LA Galaxy. And I was super excited. I'd always tell him, you saw David Beckham and Landon Donovan and Roy Keane play. Um, kind of, right? Because yeah. he was in Europe. Uh It's a fun story I like to tell him because I was excited. It was the first time I'd seen Beckham, uh, all of those guys actually, uh, Donovan, Roy Keane. But I'm pretty sure that day you've got a little bit better story about um, Josh Saunders and Landon Donovan. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: That was fun. Um uh, Josh and his brothers, Sean played uh, for the Timbers together as brothers, and uh, they just—I just, I, I just became, instantly became good friends with them. Uh, and, and Sean was coming into town uh, with the Galaxy to play, and and he says, "I want to get together," and I said, "Okay," and I said, "Well, uh, let me grab my kayaks and we'll, we'll go out." And uh, he goes, "Well, I got somebody else who wants to come along," and I said. I said, well, I got plenty of kayaks. I'll bring them. So load them up in my truck, and I pull down to the Nines, and there they are waiting on the street corner. Josh and Landon Donovan, and Josh hops in, and Landon has to sit in the back seat uh, in the <laughs> jump seat of my truck, and I and he's just he's just all smiles, and he goes, Hey, how you doing? He goes, I've been watching you for years. He goes, I Finally get to meet you, and I'm I'm just going. Wow, this guy's glad to meet me. Whoa, so, and I I also remember Gavin Wilkinson grabbing um, from the top of the pole. It happened right underneath me. Uh, Gavin got beat on the play, and Gavin just reached out and grabbed him by the back of his shirt and hauled him down. And and it was oh, it was a penalty kick. So we talked a little bit about that and had some laughs, but. Uh yeah, we went out kayaking, we went out and paddled around Ross Island. It wasn't it wasn't a big long paddle or anything because they had a game coming up, but we got to hang out and that was really cool. You know, I uh I've I've had yeah you know, I've had a lot of opportunities to to meet players from all around the world, you know, Dennis Tour, Beckenbauer, Chenalia come into town, you know, and we go out to um Oh, now it's going to escape me. I can't remember the name of the place. We go, Abernathy. And uh, we go out and have beers. And I got to join in, you know. I loved when uh, the team would go to the Hilton. Timbers, if you're listening to me, stop the serpentine stuff. The You know, the kids have to file through to get autographs. Let them go amongst the crowd. I know Messi. You can't do that. You can't let him walk in amongst everybody. But the, our players, I love the hospitality of the whole thing, uh, and try to restore that. You know, it'd probably be hard to find a facility where they all could do that. But uh, people want to go up and meet them as, as not only players but as they're they're regular people they're not born superstars and uh l- let the crowd be near them and get to shake their hand and talk to them you know so i i really believe that that's uh, that process helped build the portland timbers
0: yeah uh, i so... go ahead
1: go ahead well Nobody's... i got to, the other thing i wanted to mention is i got to got to meet uh well get to know uh glenn Myernick and and the guys from those days <laughs> willie donachie and uh all those guys uh young jung cho um, oh. but one guy i got to got to meet was glenn Myernick, and he was he was a oh man he's kind of like a ray martin uh, this tough guy and he was a leader on the team. And Glenn went on to uh, coach the U.S. men's national team as an assistant. And he and I got up on front of the Timbers Army and we sang You Are My Sunshine, did some chants. And uh, I'll, I'll remember that for the rest of my life for sure. And then th- just out of the blue, one day I, I heard that Glenn had passed away. He, I think he had a massive heart attack or something, but uh, it, he was gone way too soon. And my life is filled with a lot of memories of great people like Glenn Myronick.
0: And, you know, a lot of these relationships come from, like you said, just time as people, but it it also, on the other hand, is, in the, and I mean this in the best positive way, it's a lot of work to, to build the game and build relationships as Timber Jim uh you made a lot of appearances um, outside of the stadium as well. And you still have, you know, your normal jobs, but what were some of the things you did um, to connect with people outside of the field as timber gym and especially in the, even in the NSL days?
1: Well, honestly, I, I had a regular day job and, and it was pretty physical work, you know, trimming trees and whatnot. And and later on I became a lineman and um, helped build light rail. But I was tired at the end of the day. So uh, I, I enjoyed going to places like where I could kick back and relax, uh, like the Hilton or wherever, just a, 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 a tavern. The Better end was uh, a real big going concern. I liked doing that. But I did parades. I, did, I went to a few schools and did readings and stuff like that. Joey Weber has taken that to a whole new level. And he, he is, you know, he's a big time representative of the club. The players can't do that because uh, time constraints. They don't have the time to go to all these places that Joey does. And Joey has attracted a lot of ambas- uh, uh pardon me, as an ambassador, he's attracted a lot of sponsorship. And uh, I just love to do these. I I could have searched the world over and couldn't have found a better replacement. And I really appreciate that, that I was able to have the traditions that I started continue Mm -hmm. and still continue today. But I really wasn't as active in the community because I had a day job, you know. Yeah, and uh, I I'll basically show up for games and uh, do my thing.
0: So the, I want to sort of jump ahead a little bit uh, and then we can come back. But you mentioned Timber Joey, uh, right? Is there anything else you could, I mean, say about Joey? I mean, he he himself yeah. was dragged to a game. At, well, you weren't dragged to the game, but he, you know, some friends took him. He wasn't really interested in necessarily going. And then he sees you doing your thing, and he's He's into it, and now, like you said, he's an ambassador for the club. He's, my son and his best friend saw him up here where we live. Um, in the middle of the summer, the school had a reading thing that Joey came up to, and he was fantastic, of course, but there's a connection there. And so, like you said, he does things players can't do. He represents the teams a different way. And um, Yeah, go ahead, and if you can, uh, talk a bit about, about Joey.
1: Well, I love him uh, big time. Over the years, I've gotten to know him. I, I knew he was the right guy for the job. Uh, when I looked in his eye and I shook his hand, his hands are huge. Uh, it's like you put your hand in, inside a great big paw. <laughs> He's super strong. Uh, he played rugby. His dad was a rugby coach at Oregon State, and Joy uh, did professional rodeo. Uh, a lot of people don't know all this stuff about him. But uh, he has quite the pedigree, and he also, uh, uh, you know, I I went. Uh, I love the fact that they read. One of the last readings I did, I went to a school, and I think I, I read the. Uh, oh, it's a book about the tree. Um uh, Lorax, Lorax, the Lorax. I think that's yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. And. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't long after Hannah passed away, and they wanted me to go to read these kids, and, and I just got to the part. I look out there, and I look all the young faces, and I broke down, and I couldn't do it anymore. Same thing. I started uh, first aid CPR. Uh, I just can't. Uh, I taught first aid CPR forever, and I taught Joey, and uh, Joey was involved in help getting that going also, Dale Montgomery uh, guy. So, so these things are uh, are continuing. joys is expanding them, and uh, the reading and uh, doing parades. I mean, golf tournaments. I mean, I never did all that stuff. And and he gets it. He's got a wood wood uh, a wood lot. He delivers firewood to people. He's had a concrete company in the past. I don't think he's doing a whole lot of that in, anymore, but he's, he's built a lot of foundations and slabs, board slabs. Uh, he's got a real estate company that he works for, the Lincoln Group. And he's selling my house right now. And uh, the other, other thing that he's doing is the timbers. And he's so busy. You know, he's hard to get a hold of. But he always answers my call, and uh i I just love him. Uh, his wife is just the sweetest person you'd ever want to meet and uh Sidney. and they got a great life, and uh they make time for the timbers. Sydney knows what's involved in being Timber Joey, that's for sure mm-hmm. but uh Alaska Airlines has embraced him, and uh, he's made commercials for them. Uh, I could just go on Burgerville you know I'm jealous of sin he got a Burgerville commercial he gives free milkshakes for the rest of his life come on
0: yeah that's, that's the best one you've mentioned so far I think <laughs> for sure <laughs> so,
1: so here's that yeah, Okay, so, he's so much fun to hang uh, around
0: you know really
1: mm-hmm.
0: while we're talking about that Jim uh, I want to This is important for me to recognize, and I know you you as well, but when when I've talked to anybody who's who's been involved in in building the game, it's essential that we recognize that they didn't do it alone. And your ability to do what you've done, as well as others, it's a family thing. Yours specifically was enabled by your wife, Diane. And I know many in the Timbers Army and Rose City Riveters, and maybe even some in the greater Portland soccer community know her, but How important is it to have the support of your family when you're giving as much as you did and do to the game and the community?
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity to mention, Diane. Um, We've been through life together. Uh, We've been married 41 years, uh, raised three girls. Two of them are gone. Um, It when we lost our daughters, it, it changed both of us. But uh, she, she is she is the catalyst in my life. Uh, I, I was so angry when we lost our daughter and and Hannah. And, and uh, she said, you need help. You no, know, you're so angry. She's just a kind and gentle spirit. And uh, our kids were everything, you know. Uh, there's not a mean bone in her body. She's a great cook. She comes from a line of great cooks, Her <laughs> grandmother, her mom. Uh, but uh, our, she takes good care of me and I take really good care of her. I'm, we're both retired, so we got time to do that. Uh, I love she's easy to live with. I wake up in the morning, and I roll over when I wake up and she's laying there beside me and I count my lucky stars. I love her with all my heart. She's my soulmate. So uh, she supported me. She knew that that I had to go do things with the timbers and she was all in favor. A lot of times, uh, she used to like to sit in the Widmere deck back in the day. She had a friend and uh, They'd come and they'd sit there and they'd have a glass of wine and that was their spot. And she could see me climb the pole and it, it made her nervous. She knew I was safe, but she didn't like watching me do it that much because it it made her nervous. But uh, I assured her I'm, I was fine. Love that woman. She's awesome. <laughs> and she loved Make our sure daughter. That. And right now, yeah. right now, uh, uh, Both of us are changed people. But I really, you know, when somebody passes away, it's over. Uh, Game's over. So we had lots of really great memories of our kids and all the things we did with them. And I'm so glad I was able to share my life with Diane.
0: So I'm going to go into that in a few minutes, but I also want to talk about it, and you sort of hit on this as well, your, your, your different lives, I guess. And, you know, I mentioned that Portland author Catherine Dunn uh, who wrote Geek Love is credited with saying something to the effect of every Portlander is been living a minimum of three lives. Everyone has at least three identities. And I thought of this when I was preparing for this interview. And I thought of you because you weren't always Timber Jim, even while you were being Timber Jim, right? You were a logger, you repelled from helicopters, but you also had a significant life in the electrical industry can you talk a little bit about your non-timber gym career, um, what you maybe did with PG, Bonneville, and the other PUDs? And also, um, you know, you, this is, again, interesting to me because it's a huge service as well as a job, but talk about your role with
1: the total resource information system. Wow, that's a that's a mouthful. Okay, I'll start with my very first job. <laughs> I, was, uh, I washed dishes in a Boy Scout camp in Avondale, uh boy scout camp in in louisiana and that was my first experience and i was working there in the summer and then i got the my my sister my older sister came up to pick me up and take me home for the weekend and um she says we're moving and i'm i'm shocked and we're moving to oregon and uh so uh we moved out here and it it was a totally different life and then my next job was uh i worked at a gas station and off of Boone's ferry road and arco station and i worked for two retired firemen who started a gas station ed epperson and i uh was working there one time and a guy named john Dell comes and i used to go rock climbing with his daughter a bunch of other people and uh he says what in the hell are you doing here because you need a good job you need a real job he said what are you what are you doing or what's your plan i said i want to go to the forestry school at oregon state he goes i got a job for you and so uh i met him up at detroit ranger station and uh he started it Total Resource Information Program, and it's where you walk down a ridge top and you inventory everything—the timber, the terrain, the fuels that were there. The fuels, you know, fire, fire fuels are graded. And so, me and another guy, uh, Gary Russell, we spent time in Vietnam. he, he got out and. He and I were a team. We walked every ridge top in the Brighton Bush drainage area. We'd fly up there with the helicopter if we could get there and walk, walk all these ridge tops. And so we inventoried all the information of, uh, for a great big uh, project fire if it broke out. And so all the information would be put on microfilm and they could pull it up whenever uh, there was a big fire. And sure enough, there was a huge fire, and, uh, well, that whole valley is all, well, it's gone. It's burnt up. And uh, I don't know if they ever had access to that uh, when it was happening, but that's what we did. It's, if there's a natural rock outcropping, they tried to, you know, make a move off of that and say, here, the fire might stop here, and they'd plan accordingly. Uh, I also got into uh, helicopter repelling. Uh, I was on a helitack crew uh, late summer, early fall at a Detroit Ranger Station, and I they found out I could fall trees. My dad taught me how to fall trees when I was about 16, 17 years old, and I could put a tree where it needed to go, and uh, so they they put me on this helicopter repelling team as a, as a cutter. And I didn't have a whole lot of fire experience, but I, I, my job was to fall, burn snags, got hit by lightning or whatever, or, uh, you know, snags have, a, have the propensity to throw sparks everywhere. And they'll, they'll blow sparks outside of your fire line. So you got to get that tree on the ground and you try to put it in a burnout area, but if you can't, you got to drop it where it's going to go. And then the crew builds a line around that, wherever the tree went down. And then they knocked the heat out. Of it. We had the ability to call in uh, retardant planes. And our helicopter doubled as uh, well, not only carrying men and equipment and us repelling into trees, uh, tall trees, where you couldn't put it. Uh, you know, a parachute in. We could thread the needle, so to speak. And so our helicopter, once they dropped the sand, they go back to the base and pick up a 300-gallon water bucket. He'd come right back to us, and he'd knock the heat right out of the fire. Wherever the heat was, right in the center of it, he'd knock it down. So we were very successful. We could be on top of a fire and lickety-split. And uh, so I have a lot of really good memories of those. And then... My dad said, uh, You've got to stop this seasonal job stuff. He, it really made him mad that I'd take winters off and I'd go ski. you know, it was a ski bum. Go up to Mount Hood Meadows or Timberline and ski all day. And uh, I had had plenty of money because I didn't spend it. I spent $2 a day for room and board at the uh, bunkhouse at the. Uh, Detroit Ranger Station. So I had a pocket full of money, nowhere to spend it. And uh, so I took winters off and just had fun, went hunting and fishing and, and skiing. And uh, it was it was a great life. But he said, you know, you, you need to have a career. This isn't going to be a career. So he, I went to work for him. And I got on a great big transmission right away. I think it was a automobile job. We were building a right away. And uh, so I got stuck behind a wood chipper, stuffing brush in this wood chipper behind two fallers. Oh my God! I ran all day long. In fact, I I, did, I put my boots away and I got uh, football cleats, so I could get some traction in the you know the mud. And I did that all day, and then finally I uh, got a chance to get on a tree crew regular tree trimming crew. And uh, then that's when the traveling started. I went all over the Northwest. Became a journeyman tree trimmer. And basically, we trimmed trees on power lines. And of course, right now, power lines have ignited so many fires. And that's what I did for my whole career is just trim trees that were encroaching on power lines. A lot of times, the, the tips of the limbs are burnt off right on the power line. And we had techniques to where we could trim it back a safe distance and uh, ensure ri- reliability on a power line. Mm-hmm. So I did that and then um, uh, we needed more money and so I became a lineman. And I traveled around the Northwest doing that, build you know, transmission distribution, underground, I built light rail. I helped build the light rail line from uh, Rose Garden out to the Expo Center. And I did that until I got sick and I got prostate cancer. And it was pretty involved. And my doc says, let's take it out. So, bam, careers ended. So, that's the history of my working life right there. Uh, I had to do seven weeks of radiation. Later, I tried going back to work, but it just wasn't happening. And <clears throat> radiation, I was in, in the road. Uh, it just, you know, I was housebound for a year and slept for most of it. And then finally, uh, I decided what I'm going to do. And I approached uh, the 12th and the United Methodist Church about. So I've been eyeing this field for a long time. I thought, man, I want to build a community garden there. And that's one thing that my dad taught me is I, I knew how to, to uh, grow stuff. And my dad was an avid gardener. I mean, our place shined like a diamond hunt. He was a flower man, unbelievable. So that's what I did, but I grew vegetables up there and we delivered uh, produce to our local 12th and Schoolhouse food pantry. So that was my job for probably eight, Nine years. took me a while to convince them to let me do that, but it was very successful. I can't get down on the ground anymore to weed or anything. It's, I can get down there, but it's really a, a lot of work to get back up. So I had to hand it over to some other really capable people, and they are doing a fantastic job. So now it's just me and Diane in the house, and yeah, we're rattling around in this great big house, and we got to get rid of it. We have a hard time with stairs. So that's a long answer to your question. Sorry about that. It is. But uh, so,
0: so yeah, it's quite fine because what I'm seeing is this. And we started with, too, you mentioned the timber industry built this region. And here you are exemplifying, not has it done that, but only, but it brought you here and your hands are all over this region, even all the way. Something as urban as the, um, you know, the yellow line that goes to the next center or the, you know, the garden and and all of these things you've done in this region, you've also handed off. You left it better than you found it, and you put it in the right hands. Um, and so, long answers are fine. Thank you for uh, saying that. I'm gonna, yeah. It. I hope you notice that pattern because it's 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 pretty obvious. But
1: well, one guy I, I really would like to give credit to, Billy, is uh, the guy that that took over. I uh, helped develop our apprenticeship program in those years. And I taught apprentices uh, basically how to keep from killing themselves around the power line. They learned all different types of skills, uh, hydraulics, spalling, rigging, all that. And, uh, but Scott Barnes took my spot, and he's built it to a world-class program, and they just built a new facility uh, in Battleground, Washington. And uh, one of the rooms is dedicated to me in my name uh, for, for my participation in it. And that's the joy of my life is uh, knowing that I've trained hundreds of guys how to do a trade and do it safely and they're making a good living and a good retirement. Thank God I had a retirement. And I, if anybody wants to know, uh, there are positions available and you, they cannot get enough guys. To become wow. tree trimmers or linemen in the power industry. So wow. there's my uh, endorsement of that. Go do it if you don't. If you need to, need a job, and women are doing it too. Women can become linemen. and uh, it wasn't that way when I started. But there's careers out there, and they're good careers. They they do a lot of good. So.
0: Uh, you know, we've been here uh, a while and I, I could keep talking to you, but I do want to, um, I'm going to ask you a few more questions if that's okay with you, if you've got the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, Then I'm condensing some of the stuff I sent you, but going back to just sort of the last question I want to ask you about the operational work of being Timber Jim, um, you know, uh, I know you miss it and I want to just kind of ask how it feels to keep, when you go to the park, uh, just if there's a feeling there, but I also want to point out a cool piece of trivia that I found, someone I'd call a friend, Chris Brown, um, played for Jesuit High School, FC SC Portland, mm-hmm. uh, University of Portland, went on to a great MLS career, retired mm-hmm. ultimately with the Portland Timbers, scored the goal that was your last goal log um, when you were full-time timber Jim. I didn't know if you knew that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was excited to see that connection because uh, uh, he's such a good guy, um, and it's nice to have someone kind of it's, – it's a full-circle moment but I'm curious how you yeah. feel now going to the park. Um, and you know, as much as you appreciate and seeing Joey do what he does, uh, I'm wondering if there's still something in you that, that is Timber Jim. Um, and then also if you did know that that was, uh, about crispy in the last month.
1: Oh, I totally know that. Uh, yeah. I think I handed it to him, uh, when they were at the end of the match, you know, and, and, uh, he was really proud of being able to, to do that for my retirement gig. Um, Ann and I go to every game. We can uh, sometimes if it's hot, she doesn't want to go, or if it's really cold. And so a lot of times I take my brother George with me, and uh, we have a great time. At first, when Joey was down there cutting slabs, is like watching somebody sleep with your wife. You know that was my gig. You know I I uh, I love him very much, and uh, but that was my thing, and and. I've gotten over that and I'm glad it's been handed down he's continuing the tradition. Uh it's eye candy for for uh cameras, you know. Uh a lot of uh video has been done on in uh, about the the blessing of the log and all that. Uh I love going people come up to me and pat me on the back or shake my hand or thank me. Uh, for my service with the club. It, it, I've been retired since 2008. And people still come up to me and, and say they had a great time. There's a lot of pictures out there where uh, I take a picture with a young, a young kid. And now that guy is bringing his kids to the game. Yeah. Uh, my dad, me, my daughters, and my grandchildren. They, my grandchildren are fourth-generation Timbers fans. And um, we're not the only family. And there's a lot of stories out there. Uh, one of the best things that the Timbers ever did was the axe campaign when Jelly Helms took all those pic- pictures of everybody with their family with the axes and the chainsaws and stuff. And it's, it's on the side of the building, you know, and it's, it's, yeah. there's walls of it. Uh, that was brilliant it's just better than Disneyland in my uh, uh, opinion you know Kodak had a deal with Disneyland when they started up and people go back home and they show everybody their their pictures from Disneyland brilliant and Jelly replicated that basically Um, another cool guy another cool story I could talk about but uh I, I love going. I will always go as long as I, I'm on the ADA rail now. So uh, even if I'm in a wheelchair, I'm going to get to those games somehow. It's you need a ride, loving life. Know. Still, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure there's,
0: I'm sure there's no shortage of people that would give you a ride if you need. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: anytime. Well,
1: uh, people people have offered. Yeah, uh, I I took my father-in-law. law Gordon Stone. 101. I took him to uh, a game earlier on in I think it was June, and uh, he's in a wheelchair now. He lives alone, but he loves to go and he follows the game on TV. And uh, he lives on the first tee at Summerfield in King City. He doesn't play golf anymore, but uh, he had led a very active life, and I used to go crabbing with him. And wonderful guy, and he he's uh, well he's right in there with my dad as far as loving the timbers uh, you know that generation that took kids to games you know
0: well, and you mentioned that you're a fourth generation timbers family and there are others out there and as we approach our 50th anniversary you know the vancouver seattle and san jose were founded in 74 they're going to hit their 50th anniversary next season yeah. 50 years is pretty significant and pretty amazing and like you said we have multi-generational families around this sport and it, it's such a special thing here. How can, you know, I mean, part of this project is that I'm trying to do is get back to that 50 years and, and try and put it in perspective for people that made, I don't know. It's, it's really important. So I want to, how, you of, uh, you how do you think? Thank
1: you for that.
0: Yeah. you welcome. Um, but how can a club like the Timbers uh, who are approaching 50 years, uh, I don't want to say capitalize because I don't mean it monetarily necessarily, but how can they, um, keep bringing people into this and mar- mark this occasion, but also use it as something that begets another 50 years or another hundred years, because it is a special milestone.
1: Yeah. We're not going to live forever. Um, I'm, I'm, i already been approached. Uh, Tony Betts for sure. He wants to get, get it going. And Mick Hoban knows how long it puts together something like that. We've got two years to go. Let's make it right. Uh, if they're smart, go get a hold of Nick and Tony and some of the other alumni, and uh, let's fly them in, get them in here. You know, yeah. let's have, let's make a week out of it. You know, maybe a month out of it, and and uh, have special events and stuff. Uh, I've already alluded to. Uh, I think they need to make it easier for people to to shake hands with players and speak with them. I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if MLS now will allow that. By the way, you could never erect a pole uh, now or come out of the rafters, rappel out of the rafters and beat a drum. MLS doesn't permit that stuff. Uh, they, uh, they, they don't allow it. Uh, but I know the traditions will continue Uh, I'd love to know where is everybody now? I think we're going to have a special visitor come uh, next week. And he's a legend in his own country and built soccer there. And I'm not going to give the secret away because I just got notification yesterday that Friday's supposed to be at an event. He he doesn't even know anything about it yet, but we're going to surprise him. But uh, he's a big name in the timbers, and and, uh, I'm not gonna uh, spoil the surprise, but uh, so many guys, so many guys. Uh, One person I I dearly uh, loved and had so much fun with, Grand Day, that guy was a character, and he ran a place called uh, Flower Pot. He had a tavern, and uh, he passed away. You know, so we're not going to live forever. It's important to these alumni that they're recognized and appreciated. Uh, some of them have bad knees, can holy walk. I know Tony's had both of them, his knees rebuilt. I think Nick has too. John's had hip surgeries and all that. So there's a price to pay for all that entertainment. Let's honor them. And uh, I, I think you put Nick Hoban and some other guys in charge of that. You, they're Nick. Uh, Man, that guy's detail-oriented. He can get stuff done. So yes, he can. He can. I agree.
0: So, okay, so I'm. Um, I really could go on all day, but I've got to ask you two more questions if that's okay with you. And I'm sure anybody listening isn't going to mind at all because you're talking, not me. But one thing we haven't covered yet, and really there's going to be there needs to be more of this even with my own project but the timbers army the rose city riveters i mean what do those groups that are both under the 107 independent supporters trust mean to this community uh, one thing i've heard them say is if you want to be timbers army you already are and i love that but how can uh, how can formal and informal participation in those groups help people connect to each other to to this town this team and, and just their
1: communities well uh... Timbers Army, uh, their force of good. That's what they do. That's that's their ethos. Um, They've helped me with every project they've asked them to do. All the spread the love sweaters or scarves uh, that we put out there. The Timbers Army made that happen. They distributed them. They sold them, and made a lot of money for a lot of different things. And is I, this too many to to mention uh of all the things that they do what they stand for team town community you know team town club um i i i in uh, the timbers army wrapped diane up in a great big cloud of love when we were in our darkest hour and uh, there's some things that I, in the past, I really didn't care for. I don't like potty mouth chants. I think it's bad karma. You know, mm-hmm. you might feel like saying it, and you know, you might get away with saying it, but uh, we don't need that, in my opinion. We don't need potty mouth chants. But I never publicly criticized the Timber's Army. Uh, they've done so much good in my life and in the communities that we live in. For the most part, they're just letting off steam. You know, been working all week, and they want to go have a good time. You know, they can yell at the opposing goalie all they want. (laughs) So that's what my brother and I used to do. But uh, anyway, I I love them. Uh, The Ribiters, same thing. Just the other day, uh, there was a sold-out. Uh, Providence Park for the Thorns. The Riveters were part and parcel in making that happen. They're organized. You know, it's just me up there on a the capital stand projecting my voice to thousands of people and you just can't generate that type of volume when there's that many people. So now they have capital stands. I don't know how many capos there are, but they are human net metronomes and they organize and they, uh, the Army sings from about an hour before the game starts. They take a break at halftime, and then they sing to the very end and t- until the players walk all the way around the stadium and receive slabs for goals and for shutouts. And it's unique. It's very unique around the world. And then their children join them on the field. And to me, that's precious. I love it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not as involved anymore as I used to be, but uh, whenever they call, I'll I'll help them do whatever they need to do. Mm -hmm. And so this is related to that
0: a little bit, my last question. And I think there are a lot of great places people can get versions of your story, and I have a link to the OPB piece I mentioned, the City, excuse me, CityCast podcast, CityCast Portland pod, your TEDx talk, yeah. all that is linked to in the post that um, accompanies this on the Green is the Color webpage. But I want to include one last question of a personal nature because um, we talk about belonging, community, and love, and we've talked about a lot of that already. Uh, those are definitely essential when sport is at its best. Um, and here's where those are guaranteed to exist. No matter how the Timbers are doing, or the, well, I don't know about the thorns, I gotta be honest there, but how the Timbers are doing, or what's going on in anyone's lives, something comes from the Timbers Army in the 80th minute of each match. And I mention this because it's important. It's a beautiful moment through you and through your family. We're all together, we all have each other. And because it always happens at the 80th minute of a whole match, we'll always have that opportunity. That moment of love is one dependable thing at a soccer game and it will continue as long as there's the Portland Timbers. Can you explain to people who may not know, and I'm hoping that's a small number and getting smaller number who don't know, uh, what happens at the 80th minute?
1: Well, they sing You Are My Sunshine. That was Hannah's favorite song. And uh, we lost another daughter, 21, on Christmas Day, 1921. Callie, our oldest daughter. And Callie and I got up on the capo stand and sang that song, along with our granddaughter, Tiana. This as a tribute to Hannah, and I felt like if the Timbers Army sang it, she could hear it. I know it doesn't make logical sense, but... uh, it, for, for a long time, it felt like I was going to a funeral when I heard them saying that, but I, Diane and I had totally different feeling about it now. It's so nice to have your, your daughter honored that way, you know? But now it's for a lot of other families. There have been a lot of loss in the Timbers Army. You know, uh, Giselle Currier, she's, she, I'd say she's the matriarch of Timbers Army. She started the No Pity Scars. Um, Howie, uh, you know, remember Howie? Right up front and center of all the matches in uh, early years, and uh, he's gone. And those those people uh, perpetuated uh, singing that song, and uh, I'm am deeply honored that, that they still sing it. And uh, for a long time, Capo said, well, it's such a slow-paced song. Hey, there's been some major goals scored during that. We call them yeah. sunshine goals. Hannah's favorite song was You Are My Sunshine, their favorite flower, sunflowers. In the back of my yard, I bet there's 300 sunflowers that are in full regalia right now. Funny that they would come on so late, but it, the timing seemed right. But uh, it's, it's a good thing, you know. Uh, you're right. People come together, they sing it, and there's a whole lot of love. You know, <clears throat> one of the things, at one time, there's a the timbershop at a crossroads. Are they going to be an aggressive, uh, in-your-face type of uh, fan support, much like some of the clubs in Europe or South America, Uh, I mean, heck, there used to be fist fights among supporter groups. We're not that way. uh, A lot of people go to their first game, they get scarred. They've never been to a temperance match. They get a scarf put around their neck. They get somebody put their armor on their shoulder. They get hugs. It's it's about uh, honoring the game and having a really good time. And I think our goal celebrations are one of a kind. Cutting slabs off the logs. I'm so proud I'm involved with part of that. And uh, I'm lucky to be me. Sometimes it's really good to be me. And uh, I'm grateful. I'm really grateful.
0: Well, Jim, you've given so much and continue to give so much to this community. I want to thank you for being generous and passionate about the Timbers, uh, about Portland, and about people. In your TEDx you said, I highly recommend applying love to
1: any situation. I mean,
0: That's really it, isn't it? That's, that's the secret. That's the goal.
1: Yeah. Well, watch my TED talk. That's one thing I would say. Uh, when when I, Hannah died, I was out of my mind with rage. And love fixes things. And I believe it. Uh, you know, when I'm getting amped up, Diane will say, Jim, that's it, I'm down, you know, I listen to her, and uh, just let it go, you know, uh, so, and, and, and I really believe that. Love has p- power uh, that sometimes hard to understand, but uh, if you if you do apply love, if you you think about it. You, you kick back and step away from things that are making you angry. There's a reason why you're angry, and you need to address it. But address it in a in coming out of a place from love, caring, kindness. And uh, I appreciate you asking me that question, Billy. I I believe that with all my heart. It's it uh, it changed me. It fixed me. I, I'll be able to live a longer life because I. I, I like I get kick that cloak of bitterness and rage off and I, I put something else inside me and it's helping me you know cope with the tragedies in life the disappointments the setbacks and, uh, I'm a happy guy really and uh, for a while I got derailed but I'm I'm back on the bus
0: well you're not alone
1: <laughs> and
0: uh I want to end this by going back to where we started. And I put a quote from your email to me at the start of this podcast. And I'm going to go back to it. When you said, I often see my name among legends of the Portland Timbers and shake my head and ask myself, how did this happen? I hope this conversation has answered that question for you at least a little bit. Because to me and to others, it's quite obvious how
1: it happened. Thank you. I don't know. I don't. You know, there's so many guys who deserve to be up there. I could start naming names, but I'd I'd miss some, and I'd feel bad about that. But guys who dedicated their whole life to the game. You know, I never kicked the ball. I never made a save, but I knew how to celebrate them. I think I included thousands in doing that. And uh, if you're a Portland Timbers. We love you. We thank you for your service to the game. Uh, I I wish you were right up there beside me. In fact, I'd take my name down if I could put a couple up. Uh, but I'm a happy man, Billy. I I appreciate that. Those guys they're big, still a big part of my life. I don't get to see them like I used to see them, but uh, they're all doing well, I think.
0: Jim thank you so much for for the time and for everything.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for asking. I'm retired. I got nothing else going on. <laughs> I got nothing <laughs> but time. <talking. laughs> <laughs> oh great. <laughs> okay, yeah. man. You are my sunshine. My only sunshine. You make me happy skies are gray You'll never know dear how much I love you Please don't say my soul